Amen. All right. Go ahead and go to Matthew chapter 16 tonight. Matthew chapter 16. We are going to, we're getting to the part of the book of Matthew where I think it's really going to start getting interesting here in the next weeks where I'm really looking forward into getting to these parables and you are going to hear preaching based on interpretation rather than application. We'll probably do some application, but nobody does the interpretation of the parables and we're, we're going to be getting to those in the next week and it is so important. And when you we look at the interpretation of the parables, you will see why most Baptist churches do not preach interpretation when it comes to parables. They only preach application. But this chapter, I believe what we are seeing here is this is we're we're entering into a very pivotal pivotal moment in Christ's ministry. And we're going to get, we're going to touch on some deep things at some point tonight. I'm titling tonight's, Did the Coming of Christ Already Happen? Right. Now, there is, there is a growing movement thanks to the internet. And that is the teaching of preterism, that Jesus already came back. Okay. This is one of these doctrines that will only grow on things like the internet because Christians and churches have always, you know, kept and heretics out, but the internet can't do it. And so as a result of that, some pretty seriously flawed stuff is able to slip in. And let me just say too, that when it comes to a lot of this preterism that's going around, I do credit a lot of it slipping in due to the errors of dispensationalism. We There's been so many flaws from dispensationalism, it's made these people discredit everything that futurists say. And as a result of it, they've kind of been able to lead people up a creek. And I do think there's areas where we're failing in communicating some things accurately. I think there's elements of doctrine that are, uh, especially with eschatology, that are kind of being ignored. And it is, it's, it's causing it to be uh, very easy for people to be deceived. And so it's not to the end of this chapter where we're going to see some of this. And, and so we're probably going to touch on some of this tonight. But uh, some of this will be continued into next week. So I might have to leave everybody hanging a little bit tonight on some of these things. But just let me go ahead and give a spoiler alert. Jesus hasn't come back yet. Okay, He's still coming. All right, He's coming again. Okay, He's coming, he's coming again. And when I say he, he is still coming back or He hasn't come back yet, like He hasn't come back in the way that we are looking for Him. Okay, In the way we are looking for Him, He is going to come back in that way. So... Uh, keep all that in mind, but let's go ahead and start going through this chapter. And uh, before we do, remember the previous chapter ended, and this was two weeks ago we covered this, so I, we need to remind ourselves of this, of Jesus doing the miracle of multiplying the loaves for the second time. Where that first time it was 5,000, now there's 4,000. Two times Jesus has multiplied loaves. And so in verse 1, it says the Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempting him, or tempting desired him, that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now, remember again that while Jesus often did signs, he did them according to his will and purpose, not according to the demands of everyone who asked. When you go demanding God do a miracle to prove that he is who he says he is, that's you tempting God. That's like you coming up to me and you know daring me to do a backflip or something. That just means you think I can't do it. And you don't have the right to go to God and tempt Him and dare Him 
to do something. I'm not going to believe that you're who you say you are unless you do this miracle that I ask you to do. That's tempting God. And so uh, they had no right to do that kind of thing. This was uh, not something they were doing for any good reason. This was simply just them tempting Christ because they did not believe his words. This was an example of the Jews requiring a sign. But did Jesus give them what they wanted? No, we don't go demanding signs. And so, uh, and here's a question too. How is the feeding of the 4,000 not a good enough sign? How about the feeding of the 5,000? Jesus has already done countless miracles, but they want him to do one on demand. And just remember that too for the Greg Locks that are out there today, these people that are talking about how the gifts of miracles and healings and all these things are still around. These people, what they are doing does not even resemble what was in the Scriptures. They're going around acting like they have the power to just do these things on demand to, so they can you know, convince the gainsayers through these signs and miracles and things. And I, I'm not preaching on that tonight, but the spirit that these faith healers today are doing things, it's not the same spirit and it's not even in the same way of what we see in the Scriptures. And... Uh, never, do not be deceived by that. But verse 2 says, He answered and, answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? And so, just like there's obvious signs in nature that help us predict weather, there were very obvious reasons that they should have believed Christ. But the fact was, they had an evil heart of unbelief. Hey, there are, you, if you've been outside much at all, if you've been around for any length of time, you can go outside and you can see, you can tell when something is about to happen. You can tell when a storm is coming. And, and there, you, know, you ought to have enough sense to get inside when you see certain signs in the sky. And so there were plenty of obvious things taking place where the Pharisees should have realized Jesus was who he said he was. But yet they're still demanding he do something on demand. And that's not, that's not right. They had an evil heart of unbelief. And all of us are very good at seeing what we want to see. And the reality is they didn't want to see the truth of Jesus they didn't want to believe him. So I don't even think it would have mattered. I think if Jesus right there would have went and done some kind of miracle, I don't think it would have helped. I, I really don't. Because at the end of the day, you're going to get, you're saved by grace through faith. And they, their problem was they had no faith. So verse four, Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign and there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. And the sign of the prophet Jonas was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Just like Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, Jesus was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And understand too, we're not going to take time to go into it, but this is just further proof that Jonah chapter 2, the words of Jonah were about Jesus, not himself. Jonah... The things that he describes in there, okay, Jonah didn't go to hell. There's, I have heard preachers in the past preach that Jonah actually died, and therefore, all, you know, he and and they do that because, I mean, it's clear from what he's talking about, but the earth or the bars being around me, he was clearly in hell. But no, 
he was speaking as a prophet. Like David, who said, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. He was speaking of Jesus. And Acts 2 makes that very clear, that that's what David, he wasn't speaking of himself, he was speaking of Christ. And often the prophets, they spoke in that way. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch, when he was reading Isaiah, he said, who is he writing about, himself or of some other man? And you know what? Philip preached to him, Jesus. He wasn't writing about himself, he was writing about Jesus. But that was often how the prophets would speak. And that's another important thing about prophecy too. Prophecy is not always meant to be taken ultra-literal because sometimes the prophet would speak of themselves, but they were actually speaking of Jesus Christ. And we don't have time to go into all those examples, but metaphorical language, that's, a, that's something the Bible often uses. Poetic language is something that the Bible often uses. And so we do. We, see, we know that Jonah was writing about Jesus. And in chapter 2, and I believe this passage is further proof of that, and we're not going to take time to go through Jonah chapter 2, but just some things to keep in mind about prophecy. So verse 5, And when His disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And Jesus here is clearly trying to teach a lesson and they clearly don't get it. Okay, because the Pharisees and Sadducees, they had a lot of problems. So what was Jesus specifically talking about right here? Well, verse 7, it says, And they reason among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Now, now think about it. Jesus had just fed a multitude with very little bread. And, this, and he had done it twice. So is lack of food a problem for Jesus? Again, now remember too, Jesus never purposefully got himself in circumstances where he needed a miracle. But when they would find themselves in circumstances where they needed a miracle, Jesus would provide. And the disciples, they didn't forget the bread on purpose so they could go and Jesus could you know, do another miracle. No, they just forgot. They just, they just messed up here. And so whenever Jesus makes the statement to them, they're thinking, man, we're in trouble because we didn't bring any bread. And that just kind of shows... The disciples were pretty slow in a lot of areas. But notice what it says. Which when he perceived, he said to them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves, because ye have brought no bread? Do ye not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets he took up? Neither are the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many baskets he took up? How is it that ye do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread? that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then understood they how he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So a couple things about that. Obviously, when the disciples are getting perplexed and worried because they have no bread, that right there shows a lack of faith, which was a huge problem with the Pharisees and Sadducees. So that's why I believe Jesus said, beware of the leaven. But it's not only that, okay? Not only is it just a result of not having faith, but if we want to get a little more specific about that, I think Luke 12, uh, verse 1, it's a little more specific when it says, in the, uh, in the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye 
of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Okay? So, if you want to know the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it's hypocrisy. Okay? Now, to be a, hip, to be a hypocrite, that means you have to have something you're teaching that doesn't necessarily balance out. Okay? Now, what would that be? Well, first off, they had no faith and they were all about works, weren't they? And did you know, and, and of course tradition, they put tradition above scripture, and ultimately their traditions were works that they were adding, works that they were imposing on everyone. And the reality is anyone who teaches a works-based salvation, anyone who teaches in any way that works is a requirement to be saved or works is a necessary evidence to prove you are saved or works is somehow necessary in order to stay saved is, in fact, a hypocrite. If they, all, that's all there is to it. They're a hypocrite. Because if we're going to make the works of the law somehow a requirement for salvation, before or after, if we're going to somehow make works of the law proof of salvation, as like many Calvinists would do it, then my question for you is, which works? How many works? And you know what they will always do is they will reveal their hypocrisy. Because you can't, you can't take, just pick and choose what you want from the law. It's either all or nothing. So everyone who makes works any part of salvation or proof of salvation is a hypocrite. Whether it be the Calvinist who says, no, salvation, it's not of works, it's completely of the Lord. But if you don't repent of your sins, you never really got it. Okay, so how many sins do I have to repent of? Oh, you know, you'll, obviously nobody repents of all their sins. Okay, well, you tell me which ones. And you know what they'll do? They reveal their hypocrisy. Because they are Pharisees. They are absolute Pharisees, and we don't need to fall for that. So, that is 11 of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's hypocrisy. And so before we get into this next passage of Scripture, it's important that we keep a few things in mind about what has specifically been going on. Okay, Because I, I really do believe what we're seeing here in Matthew, we're kind of seeing a transition in Christ's ministry. Something here is changing, and there, there's so many things I'm afraid that we miss as New Testament Christians because of the fact that we never were under the old covenant system. We were never a part of that system. And I'm thankful for that. But as a result of that, because we were not ever a part of that system, there's a lot of specific things that the Bible mentions. There's a lot of language in the Bible that we don't always relate with. And there's things that kind of go over our head because we were never really a part of that. And as a result, people are missing things. And... I think it's important that we understand what's going on legally speaking. Okay? Legally speaking. Okay? Because we focus on, when it comes to the gospel, we all understand that Jesus Christ coming and dying on the cross, that was God's plan A. That was what God ordained from the foundation of the world. What happened is what God always intended to happen okay i think we all know that but remember i think i talked about this on sunday a little bit when god came down on the mount on mount sinai and he gave that law 
Israel made the wrong response when they heard that law and they said, we'll do it. They should have asked for mercy. But they said, we will do it. As a nation, they signed up for the law. So understand, one of the things that we see in Matthew is Jesus legally fulfilling certain obligations in his role as the Messiah. Okay, But ultimately, things did not end according to the law. They ended according to what actually happened, the cross and grace, which is what God always knew was going to happen. It was what was foretold. It was what was prophesied by Isaiah. But again, it was something... So the thing is, there are some things that we observe as we go through Matthew that Jesus is doing that people often get confused about this because they don't understand that Jesus is fulfilling some legal obligations that had to take place. And once Israel basically fully fails and voids out the contract, Jesus goes and he goes to the cross, dies, buried, rises again, brings in the new and better covenant. And not only are we able to be saved as a result of that, but it's how Israel is able to be saved too, with an everlasting salvation. And so uh, we don't have time to go into all the details on that, but we'll probably touch on some of this as we go through here. So I'm, I'm hoping I'm being clear in what I'm speaking of. But Christ's coming and ministry, it was Him coming as the Messiah to fulfill His end of what was prophesied under the Old Covenant. Under that Old Covenant, there were some things that Israel was supposed to do, and then the Messiah was going to come and He was going to bring in some wonderful things if they fulfill their obligation. Jesus in His ministry, many of the things that we have seen Him do is Him. Okay, I'm here, Israel. This is what you were waiting for. This is what you signed up for. This is what you wanted. Under that law that Moses gave you, He told you that when that prophet, like me, comes along, you better listen to what He says. And But... Were they listening to Jesus? No. But He's still coming and fulfilling His end of things. All the things that were prophesied. He shows up shortly after this on Palm Sunday to Israel on the day appointed, on the day of visitation. But they were not ready. They were not purified. They were, they were not ready at His coming. And they were, not, they were not acceptable. And so Jesus goes to the cross, which is what He always knew He was going to do. But it didn't stop Him from fulfilling his legal obligations. And so verse 2, or, or uh, the second thing, there were many things that Israel had committed to doing as a nation to prepare for the Messiah. We don't talk about these things enough. These things are not spoken of very often in theology. The dispensationalists never talk about these things. But this is, a, it, this is a, actually a huge subject that in a way, it's not talked about in church that much because it was never a problem for us. But... Much of Ezekiel, much of Zechariah, uh, Malachi. Uh, there's even some uh, evidence of this. There's some of this in Isaiah and Jeremiah. There are so many things that basically, when it was prophesied that the temple was going to be destroyed and rebuilt and they were going to be restored to their land, there were some additional commands and there was kind of a reformation given of the temple system during that time and some new things they were supposed to do to prepare themselves as a nation for the Messiah. But Israel didn't do any of those things. And so one of the, because we never talk about those things, 
when we get into the Gospels and we see many of these things that Jesus is doing, it goes over our head why he's doing those things. Not only did Israel miss those things, but it's like we miss those things too. We never talk about those things. But when you understand what Israel was not prepared for, it, that's huge because it's all, all the things that they were supposed to do for themselves. We have evidence in the New Testament of Jesus doing all those things to us through his work on the cross. And that's huge. And that, and that, that is, a, that is a huge thing. And it is, it shows one of the things that changed under the new and better covenant, under the new and, uh, and better promises. And I wish we had time to speak more of those things. And, and we'll probably touch on some of those in the next weeks because we'll see more evidence of that. But there was a way things would have played out, legally speaking, theoretically speaking, had Israel followed the preaching of John the Baptist and Jesus. And I think when it comes to a lot of those things, none of us, including myself, fully understand all those things. But it is, it's a great conversation. It's a great, uh, it, there's a great deal of subject matter there. It, there's a lot that needs to be explored in that area. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because it was never going to happen. Okay, it was never going to happen. So it's like us trying to speculate what life would be like if Adam and Eve had never eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, we can speculate. Something would have been different, but I can't tell you all what would have happened. But either way, without a doubt, Jesus, when he came at his coming, much of what he was doing in his ministry was him doing everything that was required of him and promised by the law. That's why we see him doing many things he's doing. So by this time, when we get to chapter 16, it is crystal clear Israel is not going to be ready. It is it has become very evident Israel is not going to be ready. The day of visitation is approaching, which is that Palm Sunday that we'll see. It is fast approaching. Israel is not going to be ready. Jesus is not finding faith like he was looking for. Israel is not repenting like they should be. They've already killed John the Baptist and they're plotting to take out Jesus. So God's church, it is not going to be built on the things of the law. God's church is going to be built not on a bloodline. God's church, it's not, it's not going to be built on a people who achieve righteousness by the works of the law. That has become crystal clear. Jesus wants to build a church. He wants people of all nations to be a part of that church. But it has become crystal clear that there will not be a church built on the things of the temple and on the things of the law because man can't get it done. Israel couldn't get it. And the Gentiles certainly hadn't achieved any kind of righteousness. They weren't even looking for any kind of righteousness. So it has become crystal clear at this point. It is evident. Jesus has done everything legal. The law was good. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's nothing wrong with the Messiah who has come along. But there's something very wrong with these people and they are sinful and they could not be cleansed by the things of the law. They could not be cleansed by the things of the temple. So we are about to see a change of focus here on where Jesus is done, you could say, presenting that kingdom of heaven to Israel. That day of visitation is fast approaching but what Jesus was looking for is not going to be found. The kingdom is not ready to come because there's no people for that, for that kingdom. They're not cleansed. They're not acceptable to God. God himself is not going to be able to dwell with these 
filthy people. They must have a cleansing and it's going to have to be something better than the things of the temple. And guess what? That was through the things of the law. Or not the things of the law, the things of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is what, where people found their cleansing. So the kingdom of heaven is no longer at hand and ready for Israel to claim as a nation. But Jesus is about to go solo, who is from Israel, by the way, and he's going to claim the kingdom for himself, meaning he's going to do a work as a high priest. He is going to offer up himself as that better sacrifice. Then he is going to give the kingdom to another nation. He is going to, under this new covenant system, he is going to lend out that vineyard to other husbandmen who are going to go and get a people prepared, a people who are going to be clean. And that's what we're doing, ladies and gentlemen. The kingdom, now people under the old covenant system, they were supposed to, Jerusalem was supposed to be being a light and people were supposed to be coming to Jerusalem. But that wasn't happening. They were shutting people out of the kingdom. But under the new covenant, no, we have not been called to go to Jerusalem. We have no continuing city. We seek one to come. But what Jesus has done, he now has power over all things in heaven and in earth. And you know what he did? He said, you take the kingdom into all the world. And you preach the gospel to every creature. And we've got a new priesthood. It's not a Levitical priesthood who's got to go through a bunch of washings and ordinances and things to be acceptable in their service. No, I've cleansed all of you through the blood of Christ and I have sanctified you and I've given you the Holy Spirit enabling you to be ministers of the things of God. Folks, that's a huge blessing right there. That's why we're able to get people saved and do the work of the Lord. And we can do it anywhere. We can do it without a temple and without these washings and all, all these ceremonial things that pointed to the holiness of God and the holiness of these things. And we take these things for granted sometimes. But thank God for the blood of Christ. Thank God for the Holy Spirit that enables us and empowers us to be those priests of God. And thank God we can take it to the whole world and that they don't all have to come to Jerusalem. So this is, folks, this is better. What, what Jesus has provided is so much better for the world. It's so much better for the world. But, um, but yeah, things have definitely changed. He's going, to offer, he's going to do a work as a high priest. He's going to offer up himself as a better sacrifice. He's going to give the kingdom to another nation. And we are, we are, now, we are now, for the last 2,000 years, you know what we've been doing? We have been preparing a people. We have been recruiting a people. We have been bearing fruit, unlike the barren fig tree that Jesus is going to curse later, that we're going to see in, in Matthew. We are preparing a people from all over the world, and one of these days, Jesus Christ is going to come again. And this time, this time there will be a, a people that are ready. Because the people that He is going to find this next time are going to be a people who weren't cleansing themselves through their works of the law and the things of the temple. No, He's going to find a group of people who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. A people who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, who have the Holy Spirit... And something miraculous is going to happen when he returns. We are going to see him and we're going to be changed in the moment of twinkling of an eye. And all of a sudden, this sorry looking bunch is going to be acceptable to God and fit to be in the presence of God. And we're looking forward to that day. And it's all because of Christ. He gets all the glory for that. Not us, not a temple, nothing from the law. Jesus Christ gets all the glory. For that. So we are. We, we will be ready. 
I am ready for his second coming because I'm saved. But the one thing that we, I do need to do and that we all need to be doing is getting the people. We've got to be getting people. We've got to be preparing people. We've got to be witnessing. We've got to be getting people saved. And I don't know. I don't know if there's, an appoint, if there's a number God wants. But my philosophy is, if we want to speed up the return of Christ, just go get more people saved. So what if that doesn't make a difference? Well, then less people will go to hell when he does finally come. So, you know, you can't, you can't lose by getting people saved. You, you, win every, you win every single time, no matter which way you spin it. So, verse 13. When Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answering, answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus, he is not going to build his church on the things of the temple and on the things of the law. Jesus is going to build his church on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. That's how he's going to build his church. Now watch this, and then he says, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. The authority of the kingdom. Remember, we talked about this in one of the earlier chapters. A power struggle has been going on between the legal heads of the things of the law and of the temple. But understand, Jesus Christ has come along and He is the one who is supposed to be taken over, but He is, he is being fought against by those who are in charge. And so there is. There's a conflict taking place. But it doesn't matter. Jesus is going to defeat him. And Jesus is not going to keep that old guard in place. You know, he's taken over in his administration and he's replacing those people. And he's going to use these disciples and he's going to give them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So the authority of the kingdom is being taken from Israel and it will be given not to just Peter, Okay? But those who, like Peter, confess Christ. Those who have made the same confession as Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. It's not going to be a Levitical priest by the law anymore, but a people of faith. We have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We are the ones who have authority given to us by Jesus Christ, the head of the church, the one who has the key of David, the one who opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. And he has commissioned us. And so, boy, you better believe we do. We the authority that we have as Christians to bring people into the kingdom of God. We don't have to get. You know what? If you if you ever want to get anybody saved, you know what you don't have to do? Get anybody's permission to get them saved. Pastor, I, 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 I've been talking to this one person. They've committed some pretty bad sins. Is it OK if they want to get saved? Is it OK if I lead them to the Lord? You know, nobody's ever asked me that before. You know why? Because you don't have to. Because it doesn't matter what sins they've committed. The blood of Christ cleanses those. And if they want to get saved, get them saved. You have the authority to do that. And they can be saved. Right there. Right there because of what Jesus Christ did. You have that authority. And you know what? The Catholic Church, they have no say. 
in that. The Pope can't revoke those things. He has absolutely no say. Those who have tried to claim some kind of authority, they have no say in any of these things. Jesus has already had the say. It's just our job to go out and tell people. Now watch this in verse 20. So after Peter confesses Jesus as a Christ, says, then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, this might seem strange that he was telling his disciples this, but there's some things that we need to understand. Okay? So far, in the book of Matthew, Jesus has not been referred to directly as the Messiah in a public way. Okay? The author, Matthew, has referred to him as Jesus the Christ. But, uh, and there's been references, uh, but at the same time, no one has directly identified him as the Christ yet, according to this timeline. Now, the closest things you can see to Jesus being referred to as the Christ before this, in Luke 2.26, it says that it was revealed to him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So Simeon the priest he knew that Jesus was the Christ. When he met him, he knew Jesus was the Messiah, but this was something God revealed to him. This isn't really known in a public way yet. Also, in Luke 4.41, says, The devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. So even at this point, Jesus doesn't want it being revealed that he's the Messiah yet. And he's rebuking these spirits who knew who he was. Because he for sure was the Messiah. So what is interesting, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus isn't identified in any kind of public way. Or he, he has not himself confirmed this in any kind of public way until this story, and with one exception that I can find. And that's in, in John. Okay, But before that, because John refers to Jesus as a Christ a lot, but I want to I want to just point out these differences, okay? Because again, I'm I'm showing this is kind of a transitional moment. But in John 40, it says one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and he findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas which is by interpretation a stone. So when Andrew found out about Jesus, he did. He's like, this is the Messiah. Okay? But he believed he was, but he never got the confirmation. Jesus has not confirmed it to him yet. In John 4.25, the woman at the well says, uh, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all, all, tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. So this is, in reality, the first time we see Jesus confirming to someone that he's the Messiah. It's to the Samaritan woman at the well, which is, which is pretty interesting. But, and then in John 4.29, or John 6.69, says, And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is Peter again. So Peter knew the whole time, this is the Messiah. Hey, have you ever known something before? Like, I knew it, I knew it. But it's like you don't get the confirmation until later. But you knew it the whole time, right? Okay? And so that's kind of how it was. There were people that were like, this is him. This is definitely him. But Jesus has not confirmed it to him yet. So right here in, Mark, in Matthew 16, this is where Jesus basically confirms to his disciples. 
yeah, guys, you've had it right. I am, in fact, the Messiah. That's the first time we see him doing this. But then he tells him, don't tell anybody. So it's like, okay, so why wouldn't he want everyone to know that he's the Messiah if he is the Messiah? Okay? And I, I could be speculating a little bit, but remember, just like Jesus would often tell people not to tell others what he had done, trying to keep things under control, that might be what's going on right here. But also, Israel was not even close to being ready for the Messiah in the way that you know it was prophesied that he would come if they fulfill all their legal obligations. They weren't even close to being ready. Because this is something that the dispensationists will say that is true, but they'll jump to a wrong conclusion, is you know, they'll they'll talk about how, you know, uh, you know, Christ uh, you know, they'll talk about him like the difference between him coming as a lamb and coming as a king. Right? Well the thing is, part of the prophecy of the Messiah is him coming as a king. It, the, but the thing is, and yes, the dispensation are right that he is going to do that again in the future. But the reality is, him come, he was coming as a king in this first century when he's fulfilling all those legal obligations. Okay? And so when they didn't do it, sure enough, he comes as a lamb. And then one of these, or wait, one of these days when he comes again, he's coming as a lion is another way they'll put it. So there's some truth in what they're saying. They just kind of get some things mixed up. They jump to some false conclusions for it. So the reality is, this coming of the Messiah as the lion, it's not going to happen during this time. So it really, it's kind of pointless to tell Israel at this time, hey, this is him. Because in their minds, they're going to think, hey, the king has come. He's going to defeat the Romans. He's going to defeat our enemies. He's going to set up the kingdom right now. Physically speaking, all these wonderful things are going to happen to us. No, it's not going to happen. That is not going to happen. They are not acceptable. So Jesus now, he's going to go to Jerusalem to die. His mission is now changed. My legal obligations are done. Israel are, are close to being done. It's clear this is not going to happen. Israel is not going to be ready by the things of the law. It is time to go on my real mission. It's, it's, it's high time for me to begin the true mission for why I'm here. I'm going to the cross. And we are going to see a major focus, and we're going to see him start telling his disciples about how that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to go to the cross. And so notice in verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. It's like, hey, disciples, I know you guys were really excited about me coming as king and coming as Messiah, but Israel's not ready. They are not repenting. They are not doing what they're supposed to do. They are so far from ready. Here's, what, here's what's going to go down. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And we understand why that was important, you know, but they don't understand that at this point. And so the kingdom, it's no longer being offered. It's no longer at hand, physically speaking. Jesus has fulfilled what was promised to Israel about their king coming, that prophet like Moses coming. And what Jesus is going to begin to do, it was what he was always going to do. He's going to bring in a new covenant. They have clearly 
they are voiding out the terms and conditions of the old covenant. I'm bringing a new covenant. And that's what he is starting. And so he had to, um, so there were, he had to let certain terms and conditions of the old covenant play out before he can bring in the new covenant. But I believe we're seeing a clear point of transition in Jesus' ministry here where Israel now has legally proven themselves unworthy and unprepared. And now Jesus is fully focused on what was ordained from the foundation of the world, the cross. And notice it says, at this time began he to tell them about going to Jerusalem, dying and rising again. This is when he started telling them about that. So verse 22. Now, how did they receive this when they heard it? Well, then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And this seems like a pretty harsh rebuke. Uh, and I'd like to think Peter's reaction here was motivated by love for Christ or, or and maybe a misunderstanding of the Scripture. But either way, he was wrong. He needed to get out of the way because what Jesus was going to do was completely necessary. He just did not understand that. So verse 24, Then said Jesus unto His disciples, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for My sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So what Jesus was about to do was absolutely necessary to secure the souls of men. Without this work that Jesus is going to do, every effort that man could possibly make would only result in the loss of their soul. They could gain the whole world. They could do all these things, but if they still lose their soul, what can you give in exchange for your soul? Jesus going to the cross is necessary to secure a soul. There is only there can only be eternal security through the cross. Through the law, we can mess everything up. And we always will mess everything up. And so, uh, this, that's why Jesus said this. So Jesus said this because He has to go to the cross. For the Son of Man... Now, here's where we get to a difficult passage. Okay, And again, I don't have a whole lot of time to expound on this. So, I'm probably going to have to leave you hanging a little bit for next week. But notice what it says in verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, this is, this is a very interesting passage of Scripture right here. And it does. It causes a lot of confusion. But uh, many believe that this was a reference to what happens in the next chapter. Because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it all says the same thing. And then the very next story, we see the Mount of Transfiguration. And many people believe that was the fulfillment of this. But, I don't know, that seems like a little bit of a stretch. And, and, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll point out why with another passage here in a little bit. I... I, I really don't buy into that. Um, and a lot of people too believe it was fulfilled at Pentecost. Because remember what Jesus said? I must go away and then I will going to send a comforter. And He said, He will come unto you. But then it also says too, He said, I will come unto you. 
So some people think when the Holy Ghost showed up at Pentecost, that you could say that that was a coming of Christ. That, and some people believe that that was fulfilled then during that time. I don't know that I fully buy into that. Um, there could be some truth to that. A lot of, but then, like in your Preterist world, they believe it was fulfilled in 70 AD. Now, I fully reject that and as far as what they do with that. And I'll show you why here in a little bit. Because again, it's, a, it's important that we are consistent in our interpretation of prophecy. And something I'm currently working on, and I am not done with this yet. But I'm, I'm going to try to briefly explain something to you tonight that I do need to figure out the best terminology for this concept to make sure I'm very clear in what we're explaining because the concept is is very sound, but it is it's one of those things that can be difficult to communicate without causing some confusion, and I'm working on that. But hopefully I, I can share some of this with you tonight without confusing you. But first off, go ahead and turn over to Daniel chapter 7. Let me show you something in Daniel 7 because I believe based on the words of Jesus here, I think what he's saying takes us back to a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. In verse 13 it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So notice in this prophecy about this kingdom, in some the, in the dispensational world, they would associate this with the millennium. And I don't think they're completely wrong on that. But then, like your amillennialist, what they will do is they will associate this with the coming of Christ's spiritual kingdom in the first century. I don't think they're wrong either. I actually think both of them are right. I think where they're wrong is when the amillennialist denies the physical fulfillment in the future. And I think the futurist is wrong, or the premillennialist is wrong, when he denies the spiritual fulfillment that is right now. I believe that's where both of them are making a mistake. I believe both of them are right. I believe that Christ's kingdom did come in the first century. But I also, and I also believe part of Christ's first coming Right? Part of Christ's first coming and Him setting up that spiritual kingdom, part of what happened during that time that we can credit to Christ was the judgment that came on Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, here's what I, I don't believe that Jesus came again in 70 AD in judgment. I don't believe that. I believe that the, the destruction and the judgment that came in 70 AD was a direct result and consequence of what Israel did to Jesus when they killed him and they never repented of it. I just believe it took 40 years for that to happen. And I wish I had time to kind of give proof of some of these things because if you go to Daniel chapter 9 too, you know, these people who come, you know, even though I believe it was the Romans that did it, without a doubt, they were sent by God. You know, they were, they were the instrument that God used to judge Jerusalem. For what they for what they had done for their for their killing of Jesus. So, part so again, it's it's okay to associate what happened in seventy A.D. with Christ's first coming because it was His death that resulted in 
that severe judgment that came on them. That was their judgment for that. But, uh, and, and I think some more evidence of that. Look at Matthew 26, 63. This is another reason, too, that I don't think we can just make this about the transfiguration or make this about Pentecost. But it says in Matthew 26, 63, when Jesus is on trial, it says, But Jesus held his, pre, his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tellest whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, it sounds to me like Jesus is telling this high priest here, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. So I can see where again, and then and how do we separate that coming in the clouds from what we see in Matthew 24, where He's coming in the clouds of power and great glory. And without a doubt too, Jesus clearly here is talking about coming in judgment on them. So, these passages, they often trouble futurists because it does, it, it's pretty much impossible to get around the fact that Jesus was clearly prophesying of something that would take place in their life, lifetime. He did say, this generation shall not pass. Okay? And so, it's, it's really, I think it's impossible to not associate what we're seeing here with what was prophesied in the Olivet Discourse. And this is not a problem. If at all, too, if you hold the belief that I have that the Olivet Discourse was a prophecy directed at Jerusalem in the first century, but what, uh, but it was one, too, that had a charge on it. It had a command to watch and be ready. And obviously, they weren't. But, uh, and they received judgment rather than deliverance. But as briefly as I can, because I'm, I'm about out of time, I do want to prove, uh, just point out a very important concept about prophecy that's often ignored. And I believe it's a source of a lot of confusion. But just a, one good proof text uh, to prove something. And let, uh, turn over to Romans chapter 4 and verse 17. So let me ask you a question. According to the Scriptures, at what point is a person saved? Somebody want to tell me? When you believe. Okay. But then what do we do with Romans 13, 11, And that knowing the time, it is now a high time to wake up of our sleep. For now is our salvation near the one we believed. Now, when you believed on Christ and He saved you, did you at that moment receive everything that God has provided for you for, when it comes to salvation? Did you get your glorified body at that point? Of course not. Okay. Obviously, we are waiting for that. We are waiting for the redemption of our body. And there are plenty of places where the Bible talks about things we're waiting for. But you immediately, when you, got, when you believed, you received the promise of it. And a promise of something is as good as having it in the eyes of God. So right now, we have the promise of salvation. And we can't lose that. We will have the changed body and all those other things that come with it. That is secure. That is guaranteed. But it, so in my timeline, I got saved April 30th, 1986. Okay. Now, the work of my salvation, the work of my salvation was completed 2,000 years ago by Jesus Christ. I received salvation April 30th, 1986. And one of these days, I will receive the full salvation. And I don't know when that's going to be in the future. Would we all agree with that? I think pretty much every Christian would agree with that, right? 
Well, so uh, in Romans 4, 17, it says, as it, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. God often does that in prophecy. God speaks of things that be not as though they were. Now, when does he do that? He does that when those things are secured and when those things are guaranteed. So when was it secured and guaranteed that Abraham is going to be a, pro- a father of many nations? When God promised it to him. But the fulfillment didn't happen until, I mean, it's still being fulfilled, isn't it? But the, God called him that right away. So when it comes to the coming of Christ, when it comes to the kingdom of God, all these things, okay, according to our According to history, when was our salvation settled? Okay, it was settled at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Christ's first coming was a spiritual coming, you could say, too. And He did the full work of salvation. He brought in the new covenant. But you know what He also, but part of what He did at His first coming is He removed the old covenant. That which decayed and waxed old, it vanished away. It had to go away. And we forget that part of Christ's coming. To bring salvation was also to remove the curse of the law. That was part of what he had to do at his first coming. Because that law, it was a big deal. The things of the temple, of the old covenant, they were a big deal. And so think about this. Christ lived according to everything in the law, yet in leadership under that old covenant, they killed him and they did it unjustly because Christ. And so because Christ had no sin, he was able to defeat death. He rose from the dead. And not only did he bring salvation, okay? because what do we get saved from our sins? The, the things of the law. It's the law that condemns us, doesn't it? So but now Israel, who is the one that's kind of in charge of those things, who had the oracles of God, who were over the temple. And all of those things that ultimately condemn us, part of what Jesus does at his first coming is he has to remove all of that. So understand, when Jesus dies, he's buried, he rises again. When he goes, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And then, as Hebrews says, that which decayeth and waxes old is ready to vanish away. When the things of the temple went away, you could say, you could say that at that time, Christ, the coming of Christ has fully come. The kingdom of God has fully come, spiritually speaking. There's no more work to do. It, it's done. But now we are. We're waiting for those things. But, it's, but, so, but physically, everything was taken care of. Everything was removed. Now, I, I hope I'm making sense on that. If I'm not... Feel free to ask me questions after church. We'll probably touch on this some more next week. But the destruction of Jerusalem, it proved the removal of the things of the Old Covenant. We take these things for granted. But they, they were, really were a big deal. The truth of the New Covenant was fully confirmed. The coming of Christ's kingdom was revealed through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It was revealed through the work of the Holy Ghost at Pentecost and what took place in there, the expansion of the kingdom, the inclusion of the Gentiles. Israel had one generation. You say, why did it take 40 years before Jerusalem was destroyed? Because God gave them some time to repent. 
God gave them as a nation 40 years. He gave them a generation to get with the program. But they failed and their judgment came. Everything that happened in 70 AD was a direct result of what had happened with Jesus Christ. And you could say that the gates of hell prevailed against that old system, old covenant system. It prevailed against Israel, but it will never prevail against Christ's church. It will never prevail against those who are of faith. Christ's kingdom, without a doubt, was confirmed in the first century. The work was done in the first century by Jesus Christ so He can make the promise of what is to come. So when we are, so after we get into Paul's writings, after we get into Revelation, we see it, again, speaking of a physical coming of Christ that we are still looking for, that we are still waiting for. We obviously, but at the same time too, we shouldn't be surprised that there are things that speak as though it has already happened. Because we constantly see that in prophecy where God speaks of things that be not as though they are. That because the reason God was able to, the reason we can say we're saved is because the work of Christ was already done. And so the reason too, we know we are going to be saved in the future and have that changed body is because of what has already been done in our hearts spiritually. And the reason that we know one of these days we are physically, literally, visibly going to see Christ come again in the clouds is because Christ did come in the first century. He removed, he made an end of sin. He removed the things of the law and of the old covenant. And because of that, we can have full confidence that he is going to come again like Paul spoke about. And so I, I know I, I wasn't able to develop that thought as much as I would like to, but we'll definitely uh, talk about that more next week. And so the kingdom of God has come, but it is. It's spiritual. The amillennialists are right. The kingdom of God is here. But the premillennialists are also right. There is a physical kingdom that's going to come one of these days, and there's a lot of proof of that in the scripture. And so we don't want to, we don't want to get in it, arguing about these things in reality. It would be like us getting in an argument and trying to prove that we're not really saved because the Bible says now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. That proves we're not saved. Well, we understand what that's talking about, you know, and, you know, it would, it would be foolish to say you're not saved until the return of Christ. No, let's keep talking like we're already saved because we are, because we have the promise of it. And yes, Christ came. Yes, the kingdom of God came. Yeah. Okay. I, I get that. It did. It came. But you know what? It is. There's going to be a future physical fulfilling too and we don't need to be saying no the kingdom hasn't come it's still it's not here yet it will come when we see it when he comes in the clouds that that's foolish too it's a dumb thing both are true both are absolutely true so anyway hopefully you can share more on that next week so with that let's pray dear lord i thank you so much for uh your word and just the wonderful things that we can learn from it lord we do we thank you for uh, the things of the new covenant and just the wonderful blessing that it is. And Lord, I pray that uh, uh, you'll help us as we try to uh, just prove a lot of these things from the scriptures. Lord, it's sad seeing 
a lot of our world getting caught up into preterism and a lot of the heresies that come with that. And I pray it'll help us to do a good job of uh, showing where they're wrong and just, uh, but also uh, pointing out where your kingdom has come. And I pray it'll help us as Christians to uh, live like it's here now. Help us to live victorious now. Help us to not wait until uh, you uh, come in the flesh before we start, you know, acting like. Uh, we are saved. Help us to live that way now and help us do it by faith so we can have some great rewards. When you return, in your name we pray. Amen.